verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare is the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Behold, five of the fifty, or suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Let's pray. Father, we know that your word to us has so much. We need for you to show up. We need you to to step into this story today so that we can take from it whatever you have for us, God. It's not something that we can read and just get. Would you make it true? Would you make it alive in our hearts and in our minds, God? Would you allow it to change us? And this is work that only you can do, but it is work that you do. And so we thank you, and we pray that you would do it. And it's in Jesus' name that we do. Amen. Uh, Yo, God, uh, I know I haven't really ever spoken to you, at least not in a while, but uh, don't let these bimbo cheerleaders get my friend Katrina down. This, sadly, was the beginning of one of my very first prayers that I remember praying. Um, I use the word bimbo. Um, But how in the world did I get to that point, you ask? I'm glad you asked. Uh, The year was 2010. I was working as a waiter at Los Hermanos in Terrell. Um, When I get a text message from the girl I wanted to marry, uh, I was a senior in high school, so wanted to marry. Uh, But her name was Bailey, and the, the text simply read, I kissed Kale, just thought you should know. Yeah. I feel like that is something I should know. Um, also, maybe don't do that. Um, anyway, so I tried to, I tried to fight Kale, um, but he would never fight me one-on-one. He always had his buddies with him. Um, so I did the, the smart and adult thing. 
I slashed his brand new tires on his brand new truck. Um, and then I sent him a text message saying, all right, now you come find me. So gangsta. Um, <laughs> but two days later, uh, two of my best friends at the time, they, they turned me in. Um, and so uh, I get put in handcuffs outside of a church service, because, which was good because at least people in church won't judge you. Um, so I get suspended from school. Uh, I have to attend the rest of the year in alternative school. Um, I was banned from my senior prom. Uh, but my date was Bailey anyway, so I was like, okay, that's all right. Um, and after some deliberation, like they had to deliberate on whether or not I could graduate, they were that upset about it. Um, but I ended up walking the stage a few months later to an, overwhel- an overwhelming amount of boos, like people just booing. Um, some, of, some of them were my friends, some of them weren't. But uh, so what I did in turn was I turned to an overwhelming amount of booze. Uh, I was partying, drinking, smoking. I was really just doing anything I could to just throw myself a pity party, um, to feel sorry for myself because of what Bailey and all my friends did to me, not really thinking about what I did. Um, when all of a sudden, because I think word got around, um, I get a call from my sweet cousin asking me if I wanted to go on a mission trip to Los Angeles. Uh, my first thought was, what? <laughs> like, how am I supposed to tell people about Jesus? I don't even know Jesus. Um, and my, my second thought was, if I went, how could I smoke around these Christians? Um, but so I just responded quickly with a, no, nah, I think I'll be all right. You guys have fun on your trip, though. Um, and Chris says, well, I already signed you up. Um, so I was a little taken aback, but I'd never been to L.A. before. So I was like, all right. You know, like that, that sounds like fun. Until Crystal said, but it's going to be $800. And I was like, all right, well, cool. I'm out. Have fun on your trip again. See you later. Um, and then Crystal says, but Grandma already paid for it. So here I am in Los Angeles where our group, we're standing in a circle. Uh, again, I stood out like a sore thumb most times because I was gangsta. Um, but uh, the leader, he was, he was kind of standing next to me. He said, hey, Jake, do you want to pray like to end the night? And I was like, hmm. you know, like, <laughs> because I knew that I was going to say something really weird like this. Um, <laughs> So I was just like, oh, I don't want to do this. I just sank to the floor. Um, and so I was like, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. But I said yes. Um, and so I just, I started praying for the people and what they were saying. Like, I went around the room. It took like 15 minutes, which is just terrible. Um, like, anybody who prays over like five or six minutes, you're like, oh, dude, come on. I went 15, just tripled up on them. Um, <clears throat> but so uh, next, next to me on this side was where I started um, was a girl named Katrina. And she was a cheerleader, and the other cheerleaders were, you know, like, picking on her or whatever. Um, And Bailey was a cheerleader, so I was just mad at cheerleaders at the time. So, hence the, don't let the bimbo cheerleaders get my friend Katrina down. Um, (laughs) You guys laughed, too. They all laughed at me when I said that. I was being serious. Um, But I I tell you this story because I'm a great example of how not to pray for somebody. A lot of times I get going and I really just have no clue where I'm headed. It's like, uh, where was I going? Let's wrangle this back. Jesus, amen. Um, but here's the truth. Faith, the fight to believe in God as our Savior, the, the walking out of the very thing that we believe is going to mean that we pray for other people. It is integral to faith. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And 1 Timothy 2, verse 1 says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Why? What is the end goal in praying for other people? Well, 
first, it gives us a purpose um, and just time to spend with our Father. So, yes. Uh, but also, we, as we see in our verses, Abraham's prayer is to the end that it saves the lives of other human beings. I sat on Wednesday morning at a funeral at one of my brother's friends who was 21 years old. His name was Brandon, and three people got up to, to tell the story of just the past few months. And it was all the same story. It was, he was really bad in this way, he was really bad in this way, and then all of a sudden he just turned his life around. Once he started to turn his life to Christ, and he, and he had a relationship with Christ, and every one of those people that stood up and said that exact same thing, they all said, this is exactly what I've been praying for. And then his grandpa, his grandpa was the one who was doing the service, he stood up and he said, uh, a month and a half ago, Brandon told me he believed in Jesus Christ as a Savior. Today he is with him, and I know that God has indeed answered my prayers. Prayer for others is not just that they would get well for an illness or, well on a, or do well on a test, although those are good things. There are eternal implications to our prayers. So how do we do it? Thankfully, uh, God has made it quite simple for us in that Genesis 18 uh, he gives us two steps to this prayer. The first step has nothing to do with us, which is great. Uh, it's that God makes himself accessible, and then the second is we draw near. God makes himself accessible, and we draw near. In praying for other people, God, as he sits in perfection and holiness, is untouchable to us. Um, so he must make himself accessible to us. On, to us. Um, and once he has done that, then we can draw near to God in prayer with humility and boldness on behalf of those that are around us. And if we follow these two steps, then we can properly pray for other people. And this is a good and holy and godly thing to do because the souls of, of those around us are at stake. So let's take a look at the first one. Uh, God makes himself accessible. Look at verse 16. Then, and we'll just pause there. Uh, so just as we've been going through this uh, series called Following God by Faith, uh, it's just been through Genesis looking at Abraham's life. But just as a reminder, what's happened so far? God calls Abraham to faith and a blessing where he says that he will bless all nations through Abraham's lineage and offspring. So Abraham leaves his, his homeland of 75 years to go and live in a land that God does not give to him yet. And he, he still hasn't given it to him yet. Um, and when he gets there, the land is dry as bones. And so he goes down. He leaves out of God's will in sin um, to Egypt, where he sins and sins some more. He even like, puts his wife up as a ransom for his own life. He's like, kill her. Don't kill me. Um, then God graciously brings him safely out of Egypt um, with even more riches than he came in with, which is crazy. Um, and from there, Abraham goes back to worship God in the place where he first had faith. But while they're there, the nations around them are getting nervous about this tent-dwelling nation that just keeps growing. They're like, that thing's getting a little big out there. Um, so Abraham and Lot get into an argument over the best way to go about it, um, and they go their separate ways. And there, at that point, goes Abraham's only rightful heir to that point because his wife, Sarah, was barren. They had no kids. So he had his nephew who he'd adopted. That was his only heir to this point, and he's gone. Because of that fact, Sarah thinks that it might be a good idea to have the baby through a slave woman, um, and that was definitely not part of God's plan that he had for him because this blessing will come by miraculous means, not by means of human effort. Then last week, three men who were two angels and the Lord show up and Abraham serves them like royalty. Then we saw God speaking to Sarah through his conversation with Abraham where he asked her just a beautiful question. He says, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? And that part of the story ends with God just calling Sarah out on her lie to her face uh, where he says, no, but you did laugh. 
Um, And that was in verse 15. So now, verse 16. Then the men set out from there, these three men that came that uh, Abraham just served, and they looked down toward Sodom. Sodom, if if you remember, is where Lot went down to live when he left his uncle, um, and Sodom was previously described as one of a kind terrible. Like the sin was so bad in that city that they described it. The writer, he said, no, nothing will ever touch this again. I'm going to write this as one of a kind bad. And this is where he lives. This is where Abraham's nephew lives. Uh, And it keeps going. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. So again, Abraham is just like a little kid who doesn't want his dad to leave for work. He's like walking with him to the door, walking with him out the door, um, to the car, maybe getting in the car with him. And dad's like, come on, you got to leave. Um, But he's just trying to spend as much time with his Lord as he can. Then verse 17. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Now notice, Abraham never left. Like he's having this conversation about Abraham, and Abraham's still standing there, most likely. Um, So it's almost like one of those moments at school where someone's like, "Uh, should we tell him? But you're standing right there. You know, it's like... Hello, still right here. Um, So is God calling Abraham an outsider at that point? Let's see. Verse 19, for I have chosen him. Literally what the text just said is I have known him. Abraham's my friend. I trust him. So when he poses the question, shall I hide from him what I'm about to do? It's more of like a, guys, he's in the group now. Like he is my friend. He's cool. I can vouch for him. I trust this guy. Let's tell him what's going on. But what is God trying to tell Abraham? Verse 19 goes on. For I have chosen him, I have known him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Notice the descriptions he gives to to what Abraham will be doing because they're important for what we're about to see. But he will command his household and lineage to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And justice. God is saying, I've set this man up to do the work of righteousness and justice. So let's bring him into the full circle and let's see him work. What's the work? Verse 20. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, one of a kind, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. So God is going down to judge Sodom and Gomorrah for their sins. He is going to destroy the city for their sins. Romans 13 verse 4 uh, says this. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. This is what God is going to do, what he's leaving to do, and this does not negate God's righteousness. It actually goes hand in hand with God's righteousness. God is upholding the standard. He's not flippantly looking through and saying, yeah, you're all right, yeah, come on in for whatever reason. Like there is a standard that he's upholding. There is only one standard of righteousness, and these sodomites are not upholding it. So God is going to seek out justice on behalf of those who are crying out to God to save them. These are the cries of the oppressed. The victims of injustice are crying out. How do we know? 
um, in Genesis 4, Cain just murdered uh, Abel, and God says, what have you done? Like he doesn't know. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. This is what we see here. So all at once, God is just and righteous and merciful, and so he steps in. But then the question becomes, does God really not know the extent of the sin? Like he has to go down before he knows? Like what gives? Last chapter, he just like read Sarah's thoughts. I mean, what, how does this work? But if we ask that question, we must also ask, why is God walking? Like why couldn't he just fly? Why couldn't he just fly over there and check it out and see what's going on? Uh, couldn't he just do his business that way? The, an- the answer is absolutely he could have just flown. So why didn't he? He's giving Abraham a chance. He's giving Sodom a chance. If God flies on over, doesn't stop to speak to Abraham, there is no chance for anyone at all in that city. It's an invitation for Abraham to intercede. God comes to Abraham and speaks to him and makes himself accessible. He doesn't treat him like trash. He treats him like a person that he wants to interact with. If God doesn't walk and speak and make himself accessible, Sodom has no chance. God invites Abraham to be Sodom's legal representative, a defense attorney. God gives Abraham a chance to bring his case before the God of all judgment and mercy, and he's making it to where Abraham knows that he's being heard. This is an act of mercy. This is why verse 22 says, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. God made it to where it's just him and Abraham standing together, watching the angels go off to Sodom. God is perfect. Like he does not have to stand before any mere mortal, but he does. He did not have to come to earth to spend time with Abraham, but he did. God would have been perfectly just and righteous in going to destroy the city of Sodom by flying over there and destroying it without telling anybody about it, but he didn't. God is merciful. This God is merciful. He makes himself accessible to his people. Ultimately, God reveals his plans to Abraham because he longs to save. It's an act of mercy. He does not simply sit up in the clouds, raining down justice and mercy from afar, although he could very well do so. He comes down in human form to be like us so that we could have access. God, who is not flesh and bones, became flesh and bones that he might dwell with the very ones who are flesh and bones to show them his accessibility. He's a high priest who gets it. All to show us that he's a God who is accessible. So what about us, though? What about you and I? How is it that we gain this accessibility? Because if we are literally walking and standing with God, we've either died and gone to heaven or we've just hit our heads really hard. So how do we get it? We gain access to the Father by only one way. It's Jesus Christ. Uh, Three verses just from the New Testament. Ephesians 2 verse 18 says, For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. Ephesians 3.12 says, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And Romans 5.1-2 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
God in Jesus has become accessible. When Jesus was killed, the veil that separated God's people and God was torn. Jesus is our access to the throne of God. Before belief in Jesus, we are what Ephesians 2 calls dead. By our very nature, we would choose no matter what, what we would choose no matter what, um, is because it's who we are is sin. And because of that, because of the sin that we choose, we are dead to God, alienated from the fold of God. A chasm spans the distance between us and God, and there's no way a mere mortal does that, crosses that. I mean, what sort of work can a dead person do? And because of this sin, we are children of wrath. The very wrath and judgment of God that is about to unfold on Sodom and Gomorrah, that's exactly what you and I deserve in our sins. Biblically speaking, straight from the mouth of God, we deserve nothing less than the worst destruction. Left to ourselves in sin, we are dead. But in Jesus, we have access to the God of all creation. It doesn't stop here, though. This accessibility now means that we draw near. Uh, Take a look at verse 23. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? So it just got real. Like, if we're honest, that's a really good question. Like, we we know that God's in control and and that he's sovereign, but um, it's a hard pillow. It's a hard pillow to swallow. It's a hard, those are also hard to swallow. Um, But it's a hard pill to swallow sometimes when we think about hell and all that that entails. Abraham just went toe to toe with God. This is crazy which we, we can see as, as outsiders now, like looking at it, like we know that this is just God's grace because no mere mortal can stand before God, but he's like, he's allowing this to happen. Um, but Abraham didn't know this yet. These are his first steps. Like this is a bold first step. And we also have to ask the question, why did he draw near? Like, wasn't he already standing with God? Like, did he go from two feet away to one foot away? How, what does that look like? Um, the terminology is actually legal. So literally think, of, think that of a defense attorney um, just approaching the bench to come with his case. And he's drawing near with his case. And the judge allows it with a smile because he wants it to happen. <clears throat> he continues. Suppose that there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Great question. And he's actually playing on the truth of how God operates. Uh, Let me just explain. In Joshua 7, there's a man named Achan. Um, He was an Israelite. And they're coming into the promised land, the the very land that was promised to Abraham. Um, And they're strictly told, we are not here for plunder. Don't take a thing from any of these nations. Don't don't touch anything. But Achan, he takes some plunder. He takes a robe, um, some wealth. He takes it for himself. He hides it under his tent. He breaks the law. He goes against God's will, goes against the law for the Israelites that God just gave them. And when it's discovered, he's not just punished, but his entire family is stoned to death with him. Western cultures, especially us as Americans, we're like, wait a minute. He did that. Like, punish him. It wasn't the whole family. But most people and most other cultures and most other centuries understand why this happened. Most people in most places recognize this because they realize that you're not the product of your own individual choices. You are the product of a community. Joshua 7 says that there is a corporate responsibility for sin. It's why thousands of people are guilty for the Holocaust when it was really just the idea of one man. 
by not fighting, by passively sitting by, people are guilty by association. Adam was guilty way before he took a bite of the fruit. Abraham understands this. And in a just crazy theological exploration, he flips the equation. He's like, God, I, I know that 50 unrighteous in a city can bring about your judgment on the whole city, but what about if there are 50 righteous? And he keeps going. Appealing to God's justice and righteousness in verse 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? This is just a rhetorical question. He's saying, listen, I know that you're righteous and just, and I'm not asking you to go against your law. I'm not asking you to, uh, to go against your justice. But is it possible that the righteousness of these few could outweigh the unrighteousness of the many? Could you spare, which is literally the word forgive, could you forgive the huge amount for the sake of the small amount? Could you do that? Could you love righteousness so much that it outweighs your hate for unrighteousness? And God answers. And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. What? Like, this is amazing. Nothing like this has ever happened before up to this point. And Abraham went toe-to-toe with God to make this happen, to, for, this, for us to see this. This is amazing. This means that the righteousness of a few does outweigh the unrighteousness of the many. The implications of this would just take years to roll through. But then Abraham thinks about it, and he's not so sure that there's 50 righteous people inside him. So he's like, wait a second. Uh, so he goes a little bit further. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord I who am but dust and ashes. So Abraham literally just paradoxed himself. Um, He says, I'm bold, but I'm also humble. Um, I'm speaking to the Lord of all. Like that's a bold thing to do, but I'm I'm but dust and ashes. Um, So with the access that we have in Jesus Christ, this is the type of mentality that we must have in approaching God to pray for other people. Like we must be bold yet humble at the same time. There is no other way about it. We have to be bold and, have, and ask for miracles, for God to do something that only he can do, but we have to remember our place as dust and ashes too. We draw near to the throne to pray for others on their behalf, and we do so with a humble confidence. But uh, he keeps going in verse 28. Suppose five of the 50 are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. So he knows, like he's getting into an argument with God. Um, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. Um, and he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again. But this once, suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way, for he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. And this is one of the saddest passages of Scripture in the Bible. He stops. He's so bold and humble, and he even skips from five at a time to ten at a time. But then he stops. And so God goes in the next chapter and destroys all but three, Lot, his wife, and his son. What we see is a prayer that is terribly unfinished. 
we should feel a sadness and a tension after reading this. Why did you stop? We were waiting for Abraham to say, how amazing is it that the merciful God uh, to spare the whole city on behalf of 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10, but oh Lord, would you say for one? But he doesn't. Why? Because there is not a righteous man in that city. He looks at the mountains of God's righteousness and sees a pass. He sees a way through it, but then he stops because he knows no man fits that bill. No man can do that. And he goes home. As great as Abraham was, he could not save Sodom. Abraham did not get to one because he could not bear the truth of the gospel. Because if he had gotten to one in his dialogue and asked, would you spare Would you forgive an unrighteous people for the sake of one righteous person? God would have answered, yes. If you have the right one, my son. This is the truth of the gospel, and and it's really hard to believe. This is why Abraham doesn't ever get to one, um, but it's crucial. If we understand that unto ourselves, unto our own righteousness, we have none to bring to the table, we are utterly helpless. But if we believe in Jesus Christ, his righteousness becomes ours and we stand in that utterly righteous. What we see in Genesis 18 is the ultimate truth of the gospel, what Easter is actually all about. Abraham prays for those who could hurt him, the the Canaanites. Jesus prayed for those who were killing him. Abraham risked his life for those he was praying for and standing in the presence of God and arguing with him. But Jesus gave his life for the people he was praying for. Abraham essentially discovers the fact that an unrighteous could be spared for the sake of someone else. Jesus executed it. How is this true? Isaiah 53 says it this way. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But... He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus came to earth to live a life of perfection, to be able to substitute the righteousness of such perfection onto the unrighteous. And then he was crushed in death on the cross where he died the death that you and I deserve. Jesus, the righteous, was put to death for the sake of the unrighteous, the whole. And yet not even death could hold him. He was resurrected on the third day in victory over death to show that one day you and I will too be resurrected. The hero of the story, the hero of the Old Testament and the new, the righteous one is Jesus. The question to God is, Would you spare? 
Would you forgive an unrighteous people for the sake of one righteous person? And the answer is yes, and I have. It's Jesus. Believe in him and destruction will not touch you. And now, because of this, Jesus has direct access to the Father, sitting at his right hand. Jesus is always before God on our behalf as as high priest, praying for you and I. Jesus is the defense attorney who knows the case in and out and has already won the case. Jesus never goes home in the middle of a prayer without finishing it. Jesus literally lives to intercede for you and for me. Jesus is the reason why we have access. Jesus is the reason why we draw near to pray for others. We're following his example, doing what he does for us. But it all starts with Jesus being our righteousness. When he prayed for the world, he was praying for you and for me. And at this very moment, he is at the right hand of the Father, praying for you and for me. That's why we draw near. Maybe you sit here today and you've never prayed before. If you're like me and you will say some weird things when you start to pray, Or maybe you're afraid of what you might say. Or maybe you just need someone to come alongside you to help you. Part of what Mission Church and and really as church in general, what it should be about um, is making disciples. And so people helping other people to look more like Jesus. So uh, if if this is you, like if you have something, like, man, I'm not very good at this. There are plenty of men and women here at Mission um, and around you right now that are good at it. And have prayed for years and years and years. And they know their father well. And so my, my ask is that you would find a person, maybe probably older than you, and just say, hey, will you teach me? Will you help me? Like, I want to pray. Like, I want to pray really well. I want to pray um, like this. I want to do that well. Will you disciple me? Um, and it's up to you to seek them out. Like, they don't know that you're having these in- internal thoughts. Um, but so a few weeks after we got back from Los Angeles, uh, the youth pastor pulled me aside to show me a box. Uh, he said, this, this box is our prayer box. So kids will stop by and they'll drop pieces of paper um, with names written on them. And every week we pray for this box and all the names written on it. Um, just look at this piece of paper. It was my name. It was my name. That was the moment that I knew people had been praying for me for months. And whenever, whenever I t- try to talk to somebody about my faith, I said, man, I wouldn't have been there if people had not been praying for me. Romans 5 says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, the unrighteous Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by death of his son, Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Do you see it? 2 Corinthians 
5 says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might have the righteousness of God. It's the same story over and over again. It's what the Bible is about. It's not about humans doing really well. It's about humans doing really not well. It's <laughs> a good description. But just imagine with me, one day, if we believe in Jesus, we will be in heaven at the table, reclining with Jesus and him telling all sorts of stories and, and cool dad jokes. And, um, and he'll be, we'll be laughing um, and we'll just be praising God. And we just might be too in the presence of those that we pray for. It might take five years. It might take one prayer. But because of the righteousness of this one man, this is a possibility. For the sake of one, we are spared. And now we pray. And so now, together, what we're going to respond, or how we are going to respond to this grace is by taking communion together, um, just as a picture of what that will be. <clears throat> Where we're sitting around with our friends, with our family, with those who we know and love, those who we have prayed for. <clears throat> if uh, Jesus' righteousness is yours in forsaking your sin and believing in Jesus as your Savior, then you're welcome to the table as part of this family. If you're not a believer, though, I ask that you remain in your seats on the basis of 1 Corinthians. It says that you will be eating and drinking the body and the blood that has not yet covered you. You are one of the unrighteous that has not yet made, not yet been made righteous by Jesus. But believe today. Turn from your sin today. Don't walk out these doors without knowing for sure the grace to us is we can know for sure for the sake of Jesus for the sake of one we do not have to be destroyed for the sake of Jesus we can be spared so for all of us uh, here is our prayer Father thank you for the access I have to you because of Jesus and thank you for the good news of the gospel that for the sake of one I am spared would you help me to draw near today Pray for those around me, and would you, for the sake of one, spare them?